0: Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. How would you rate your doctor? That's a question raised by Massachusetts Health Quality Partners, and they've got the answers. A special Consumer Reports health guide out today rates 487 adult family, and pediatric practices throughout the state of Massachusetts. The ratings were based on all kinds of questions from the basics like, does your doctor listen carefully to you? To things like, does your doctor know what specialists you've seen? Here to sort through some of the findings are Barbara Rabson. She's the executive director of Massachusetts Health Quality Partners. And by telephone from Yonkers, New York, Dr. John Santa. He's the director of the Consumer Reports Health Rating Center. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. So I'm Thank curious. You. Hey, John, um, was was this something that people wanted to know? I mean, what what got you figuring out? You know, that you wanted to do a rating system.
1: Well, from MHQP's perspective, what our organization is about is measuring physician performance and making that data available to physicians so they can improve the care they give their patient, Mm -hmm. but also making it available to the public so they can better inform their decision making. And so we've been measuring for for quite a number of years, and we've uh, fed the data back to our physicians and have seen some great improvements. We've always put it on our website, but we've been disappointed with the traffic we get on our website, and we realized we'll never be a household name. And so we thought that partnering with a, a large consumer organization oh, yes. would really help. <laughs> yes, because I should say this is laid
0: out as any consumer reports uh, data is laid out. You can just go, and it's, it's very readable. I mean, you can just look at it and see where your, your physician group. I should may also make this clear that you you don't, you don't name individual doctors. You name group practices, and it's three people or more in a practice, correct? Three physicians or three more, Three physicians yes. or more in a practice um, so John, I want to bring you into this um, can you can you can you really quantify this kind of data the same way you can a car I mean honestly <laughs> can you
2: well we think you can um, it uh, took uh, several decades to get car ratings uh, where they are, and um, we're uh, very excited about working away, especially with data partners like Massachusetts health quality partners um, to get to that same level. We don't think there's any reason why that can't be done and um, data like this, patient experience data, um, uh, is very important. It comes from consumers. We think this data is a lot better than user reviews. It's more scientific, um, more robust, uh, and gives uh, consumers a better picture of uh, how their doctors are performing.
0: This Questions. People are. It, it's very personal. Unlike a car, though, it's not something that's mechanical. It's like you know, it's it's this personal interaction. So a lot of the questions that you asked were, were about that, weren't they? About how, how from the receptionist to the questions the doctor asked. But I mean, I just wonder if it's when it's so personal like that, if people are going to be that honest.
1: Yeah. Well, this, this survey is, is something that MHQP has been doing for a long time. It's based in research. It's actually the things that we measure are based on the Institute of Medicine's um, re- recommendations about what should happen in a primary care visit. And so it's um, we try to make it more objective than the personal. We're not saying, how would you rank your doctor? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they say, oh, very good. Um, it's, you know, did these ha- things happen to you when you went to the visit? And so they're actually useful for improvement because if these things are not happening, um, and they should be, then it, it's, it's important both for the physician and the, the patient to do something
0: about it. So give me an example of some of the questions that you think were important.
1: Well, one of them is, did you get your test results in a timely manner? And, you know, if you don't, um, that could lead to, um, you know, you could have a serious illness that's, that's not detected or, or, you know, or else you could be in tremendous angst while you're waiting, and it could just have been, you know, just a mishap in the office. And so, you know, at least it, it is problematic, and we actually consider that a safety issue and think it should always happen in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. It's up to the patient and the doctor to understand what, what the time frame should be. Because um, you know, if you don't talk about it, then the patient could have one one uh, something in their mind in terms of what their expectation is, and the doctor, office, could have another.
0: So you had sixty thousand Bay State residents. Did you get? The databases from these physician groups. How did you? How did you even tap into these people? We get
1: we get the physicians. Um, excuse me. We get the patients from the health plans. We know these are patients that belong to the five health plans that um, f- actually funded the survey here in Massachusetts. It's Blue Cross
0: of Massachusetts. So they sold you the, the the names of these. <laughs> they,
1: they didn't sell the names. They actually sent out. Um, uh, They sent out letters to these patients. Uh, Asking if they would participate. Right. We're doing a survey with Massachusetts MHQP because if each health plan went off and did their own survey, there's a lot of duplication. So instead, the health plans came together under MHQP and sent out a single survey on behalf of the health plans. And so there's no... um, The sampling technique is, is, is random, and so there's no... Um, it's you know it's very methodologically sound in terms of who gets the survey. It's um, and it comes to their home. It's not handed to you in the physician office.
0: John, have you done this for other states as well in the healthcare, or is this a first?
2: This is a first for us. Uh, we have uh, um, uh, worked with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons to uh, publish ratings of heart surgeons nationally, but we've never published a primary care doctor. Um, uh, ratings. And we've um, never focused on one region. And it's another reason why we're very interested in what our Massachusetts subscribers uh, think. Um, we think having this local credibility and, and uh, uh, local knowledge um, will be very helpful when it comes to doctors.
0: What kind of feedback did have both of you received on this? As I say, it's very personal. It's not like the makers of GM calling you up and saying, ah, who told you that? I mean, mm-hmm. did, did, did you get personal feedback? You mean from physicians? Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, sure.
1: Some of the docs, and, and actually I've, I've observed an age divide almost. Um, some of the docs know that everybody wants information. They go to the Internet to get this kind of information, and that a lot of the information on the Internet actually is not valid at all, and it's not reliable. And so those docs say, Wow, MHQP has this incredibly reliable data. Let's get it out to the public because otherwise people will look to other data. So that's some physicians. Other physicians are, are less excited about this and feel that you know, they don't necessarily want to be measured along with toasters and refrigerators, yeah. and that they're, you know, they're professionals, and that they should be, um, you know, it, there should be a different way way to do this. But we feel that it, it's people are going to get this information anyway. They're demanding this information. They want this information. and and we felt that consumer reports with their seventy five year history of giving information to people in a way that they can, help them make good decisions, would be a
0: really great partner. John, I can't help but notice that uh, some of the higher ratings are in wealthier socioeconomic neighborhoods and sub, uh, suburbs and that kind of thing. H- how, do you, how do you quantify for that, or do, do you not? Can you just not really take that
2: into consideration?
0: Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, we did an analysis, actually, of uh, um, uh, how was performance across the state of uh, Massachusetts, and our conclusions uh, were that there were um uh, uh good performing practices uh, throughout the state you know, rural and urban um, in all kinds of neighborhoods and we especially uh, looked and in the story um, we identify um, several practices that do well across the board and and uh, they're spread throughout the state in different uh, um, sorts of communities and in, in terms of of uh, uh the, the resources available to them so um Patient experience is something that, uh, regardless of where you are, regardless uh, of um, who you're serving, uh, you can do well at and you can improve. And I think MHQP has shown by doing this multiple times that uh, um, all of these physician groups have the uh, capability to improve, and many of them are.
0: You know, I I I put a star next to one of these uh, groups, <laughs> doctors. Let's see what Northwest Boston suburbs. And these actually, you don't have specific names of doctors except for these two. It's a it's a pediatric yeah it's pediatric uh, uh, care practice. Uh, doctors Benjamin and Spingard. They got ninety a ninety two rating and fours across the board. Did anybody else do as well as they did? Yeah. There are about fifteen that that. Um
1: Got the highest marks across the board. Many of them are adult practices. We we rank them in. We have slightly different dimensions of care that we rank them on. Um, But, yeah, we're we're pleased that there were were those that um, uh, did well across the board. And some of those have been doing well from the get-go when we first started measuring. And others um, started, you know, towards the bottom or the middle and just made, you know, they've been committed and they've made improvements over each cycle. And so, you know, they've they've earned it. I think Massachusetts doctors have worked really hard at at preserving and improving the patient experience, particularly when you look at the environment and how chaotic it is these days with, you know, we're talking – Reform and system change and payment change and there, there's all kinds of um, uh, turmoil in in the healthcare system. And despite that, the patients are reporting that they're getting good care generally in Massachusetts,
0: and that's um, that's a really positive thing. When you're breaking down data John between adults and children, it's kind of interesting because the adults are ranking you know their their children's doctors, but I mean I, I wonder if they're harsher on. Somebody who they're judging for, or for themselves. Do you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> well, my sense is uh, um, that overall, the pediatrician uh, uh, practice and family practices taking care of children um, are uh, um, rated better yeah. um, than than the adults are. Uh, so, the, so the pediatricians. Uh, um uh, are doing a really uh, good job of uh, uh, giving at least the parents. yeah I think
0: that's I think that's been my experience in life too that I get better feedback from the, the pediatrician than my own doctor. That's interesting. Well, It's though. all about
2: mom, you know yeah, yeah. exactly so the, the <laughs> doctor should be should, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Is that what you found also? Barbara? Yeah,
1: oh, yeah, I think that um, overall every consistently the the pediatric
0: uh, practices get better scores than the adult practices. So do you think some of these doctors look at this data and say and take it seriously and say we've we've got to make changes based on what what they see here? That's
1: absolutely what we've seen. When I mean, we've gotten some angry calls in the past. You have to remember, we've been doing this since 2006. But not 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 laid out like this. Not laid out like this, no. We have, um, but in terms of people um, just that we've talked to, we've gotten a lot of feedback in this process. And some of them have said, look, this is something, It's you know, it's, this is what my patients are saying. I, I, you know, I it's not what I hope to hear, but uh, I'm going to take this
2: seriously, and I'll work at it to improve it the, Power of Consumer
0: Reports, John.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and, and, well, let me just put a different hat on. Uh, I was, uh, I practiced for 30 years, and I was the medical director for a group of 150 physicians with 10 offices, and um, let me assure you, uh, doctors are a competitive uh, group of people. They like to do well, and when they see their performance, um, virtually all the doctors I've worked with um, start to try and think about uh, how they can uh, get better, Um, because, you know, to do this kind of work uh, requires uh, um, uh, some security that you're getting it done. And, and when you see that maybe you're not, uh, believe me, it becomes a priority to get it done.
0: Have have things changed? Do you think much, John, over the you know past decade or so? And some of the things that people really get irritated about, you know, the the wait time or the the lag time and getting
2: uh, test results and that kind of thing, H-
0: has that changed? Do you think, in, in your opinion?
2: Well, I think it has. I mean, we've done surveying of uh, consumers over the years, and consumers are getting more knowledgeable. I mean, the internet is no an question. incredible tool. Yeah.
0: They and, think they know what per- they've got
2: when they go to the doctor's office,
0: right? They think, well, I know what I have.
2: <laughs> that that's right, and and there right. is some tension there with uh, uh, patients connect uh, collecting enormous amounts of information, and physicians being rightfully skeptical that it's all good quality. And I think that's the major change, but. I think eventually that's going to be good. Mm. That's, that's a good thing um, for patients and doctors to be on a more level playing field when it comes to information.
1: Yeah. We, we also hope that by giving this out to the public, the idea that people can see what's important to them because, you know, is, is, is uh, access the most important thing? Well, it will be for some people, but other communications more important their coordination of care. And so people can start thinking about what's important to them. And we hope, we think that the fit that you have with your primary care doc is really important. And so that this information will be helpful in people as they talk to their doctors. And, you know, we all talk about um, patient-centered care and how we've got to make, you know, a patient- our delivery system you know will be patient centered and you know here's 65,000 voices patient yeah. voices saying okay this is what's working this is what's not working and so i don't see how you can build a patient centered system without this kind of feedback from the patients
0: i'm wondering about communication too if the internet has changed that if more and more doctors are communicating through email and mine doesn't but maybe 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 more do
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of them are. And one of the physicians that sort of got our results and wasn't happy with them and then went to Uh change some things, he he realized that, you know, people didn't actually like to come into the office, that it was more convenient if they could do things over the
0: phone or prescriptions.
1: Prescriptions. You know, so what they started focusing on is is keep people out of the office and deal offline with, you know, through email and voicemail and phone. And then um, then they had more time to spend with the people who did need to be in the office. And so everybody felt happier about it.
0: Hmm. All right. All right, well, we will look forward to uh, more of these, John. Nice job laying this out with uh, uh, Consumer Reports here. I went right Thank to you. my primary care physicians. They <laughs> did quite well, too. I'm glad to I, hear good. it. Yes, they did. All right. Good. Dr. John Santa, Director of Consumer Reports Health Rating Center from Yonkers, New York, and Barbara Rebson, Executive Director of Massachusetts Health Quality Partners. And I'm looking at Consumer Reports Health. If you want to pick up a copy of this, um, it's got, no doubt it's got your primary health care physician right here listed somewhere and in the ranking. And it's available on our website. Oh, it's on the website. So you can just scroll through it. I did that earlier today. Yeah. All right. Thank you both. Okay. Thank you. Up next, it's boom time for women owned businesses. There are more than ever. Profits are up. So why aren't they creating jobs? You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Put the
3: lime in the coconut, Put the lime in the coconut,
4: you drank and poured up Put the lime in the coconut, you called your doctor, woke him up Said doctor, ain't there nothing I can take sit doctor, to relieve his bellyache Said doctor, ain't there nothing I can take a
3: doctor, doctor Funding for our programs comes from you and Blake and Associates, attorneys focused on individual matters, individual advice, and individual solutions. They listen. They understand the issues you face when assisting a vulnerable loved one. More info at blakelaw.com. And the Zyterian New Bedford.
0: Its impact has been extraordinary.
3: Katherine Knowles, Executive Director.
0: Our partnership with GBH in terms of supporting GBH has deepened to such an extent that we are going to reduce other media buys and really focus on
3: GBH because the impact has been extraordinary. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. PRI's The World is People. I begin my
1: day by taking a brisk 40-minute walk in the desert, which helps me knock everything into
2: proportion.
3: The world is different.
1: When I come back home and switch on the radio and I hear politicians using words such as never, forever, or for eternity, I know the stones out in the desert are laughing at them.
3: Join us on the world coming up at three here on eighty nine point seven WGBH
2: Saturday, July 14th, it's the WGBH fun fest. Cool off with some of the best ice cream around like Ben and Jerry's Boston and Friendlies. Rock out to live performances from family favorites like Steve Songs, Ben Rudnick, Flukey oh. and the Beans, Rick Golden and others meet PBS kids characters, enjoy rides, games, and more. Tickets are going fast, so don't delay. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash funfest. On the next Callie Crossley show, Coriolanus, the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company, is staging Shakespeare's political drama, a timely play about politics, leadership, and the hardships of governing. Today at one on WGBH.
0: You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Do you know any women who've recently hung out a shingle and started their own business? Chances are you do. Over the past 15 years, the number of women-owned businesses in the U.S. has grown by 54 percent. And business is pretty darn good. Profits are increasing. But their employee base is barely growing at all. So why is that? Here to talk about that here today is Jerry Denterline, who owns a public relations firm and is author of the book, uh, the guidebook, The Power Chicks Guide <laughs> to Boston, in their own words, a compendium of advice to young professional women on the subjects of leadership, power, and the value of civic engagement. And by telephone, Alicia Robb. She's a senior research fellow at the Kauffman Foundation. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes. I'm c- curious about your business story, but I'm going to start with Alicia. Mm. What, 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 how many uh, women businesses did you look at? Did you look at established businesses? Did you look at startup businesses? I mean, how did you kind of pull this together to figure out what, what, what the growth margins were?
5: Um, we use the uh, Census Bureau data. They do a survey every five years uh, uh, called the Survey of Business Owners, and that's the main um, source of statistics for um, businesses uh, by gender and race. So you're right. The number of businesses have has really grown over, over the last decade or two. However, we don't see receipts uh, or sales or employment growing at nearly the same pace. In fact, they've actually lost ground over the last uh, decade. So it's not great news for for us when we're looking at um, trying to create more jobs in in this uh, stagnant economy.
0: All right, so do you have a theory on this?
5: Well, quite honestly, there's not that many women starting high-growth businesses. So you see the number of businesses growing at a a very good rate, but those businesses are typically very small. For example, the latest census data show that women make up about 29% of all firms, but those firms generate less than 5% of all receipts and less than 8% of employment. So they're really not um, large businesses um, and they don't have a, a huge economic impact. Um, the way we, we, we need them to, given that women are half of our society. So
0: you're talking about maybe a clothing shop or a hair salon, something with a finite kind of space and no 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 real growth opportunity. Exactly. All right. So enter Jerry Denterline. First of all, how long have you had your business? Twelve years. I started in 2000.
6: And... You've grown tremendously. We've had a nice growth spurt, but we're not in what, what would be considered the true high-growth sector. Yeah. But I have opened a Washington office this year. I have 15 people out of here, several in Washington, and we're hiring. So we're we're considering ourselves doing quite well in an industry that um, has suffered through the recession. Yeah, and and yours
0: is a competitive industry because it's not like you're the only one in town. No. You are, it is, it's a lot. It seems like whenever anyone leaves politics, they put out a shingle. Yeah, and go into public relations
6: mm-hmm. or, you know, represent. But, Emily, if I could, I want to emphasize Mm -hmm. how many women-owned business do employ. Lots and lots of people. 13 million people in this country are employed by women-owned business. I think the figure is $1.9 in sales. So it's quite a significant sector, not to be diminished. And if you look over in Cambridge at the Kendall Square area, the innovation economy, a number of those technologically-based
0: businesses are owned by women. Do you think there's – I don't know – is are you are you stymied by, by being female, or is there something about it that you know people are less apt to, you know, invest in you or depend on you or think that you have that kind of growth opportunity? Well, again, I'm not the academic, but
6: I have looked at this from a couple different perspectives. I think one issue that's quite true is some women open up businesses to not grow, to to really just support their families, to have a certain lifestyle, and to um, hire a few people. Others, though, who want to be in a high-growth industry have trouble with access to capital. It is just simply not as easy to get investors. I worked with an organization called the Center for Women and Enterprise here in Boston, and they were looking at matching venture capitalists with women-owned business. It can be quite difficult. And then I think somewhere in the middle lives this world of risk aversion, that there's a theory among some that women are perhaps more risk-averse when it comes to taking on new hires and growing at the, quite the clip that men-owned business, male owned business would do.
0: Well, Alicia, isn't there just some plain old sexism involved in this too? I, I was thinking even personally recently, I was hiring a lawyer for something, and I wanted the guy in the firm for, for you know, I just I, I, it was two people equal, you know they, they owned mm. the thing together, and I, you know, I felt like I needed him for this particular thing that I was being I mean, isn't that part of it, do you think?
5: Well, I think part of it is just there's not a lot of women. And when we were talking about capital markets, there's not a lot of women who are actually angel investors or venture venture capitalists or partners in v c firms. And so there's when you don't have that gender balance, um, perhaps when you're looking at deals, um, looking at that woman, if you're a man could perhaps you know influence you somewhat. But you know if if you think about, try to make the best, um, return on your income. Gender, gender really shouldn't matter. Um, but it, it may factor in just because of the, the lack of women in these high-tech industries, and certainly in the financial sector that are funding these efforts. I just finished a book called, uh, A Rising Tide Financing Strategies for Women-Owned Firms, and this was co-authored with Susan Coleman. And, you know, we look at that specifically in a few chapters about high-tech women who are looking for, um, uh, you know, equity capital. Um, and we, we also look at debt financing. But certainly, we see huge differences in both the amounts of financing used by by women businesses, as well as the sources of those financing.
0: Yeah, but Jared, you know what I'm saying? I you know, know what you're you, saying. You know, I know if, what you're I, saying. If I go to your firm, and you've got 15 employees, and you go down, well, this one is the skill, this one has that skill. I mean, you know, maybe I want a woman for one thing, but if I, you know, there may be a well. I, I want the guy, for... you know well, what I'm we're, saying. Well, we're, you know, we've built a great team at our company,
6: uh, uh, and we have a number of very terrific guys. Mm-hmm. And when we do a pitch for new business, we're pretty careful about not making it an all-girl team. You yeah, know, because exactly. you, you we can don't all guy team, but not an all-girl. We team. don't know if there's going to be somebody in the yeah. room that says, "I don't want an all-girl team." Yeah. So we we try to balance yeah, uh, see, from a gender yeah. perspective, and I've also clearly have been helped by a lot of women. I've been inspired by the work of women all Me my too. life. Yeah. I've been helped by women. But I have been surprised as a business owner how few women see the sisterhood as important in terms of referring business to other women. I, th- I find that there are a lot of women that you and I both know in the city that when it
0: comes time to refer business, they'll refer it to the guy firm. Yep. Want to comment on that? <laughs> like I said, don't you think that's part of the problem?
5: I think women are not part of the same networks um, as men, and I think there are some programs like Astia, Founder Fridays, uh, Women 2.0, um, the, the, the one that was just mentioned previously. There, so there's a lot of um, programs and support networks out there for women who are interested in, in starting businesses, and specifically high-growth businesses because they are so far few and far between. Um, there are resources out there for women who are thinking about
0: that. Yeah, but I think we're talking on a more grassroots level mm-hmm. here. That uh, you know that women are less likely to help I mean, These programs are out there. That doesn't mean you know they they want to be a part of it. I mean, women oftentimes want to be in the guy's world. They don't want to be in the woman's world.
6: Well, I think you have to keep reminding women that it is important to keep the sisterhood or a sense of a network uh, because once you've achieved a certain status, you kind of think. Everybody's achieved it, and you don't realize that you still have to nurture and help people along, just as people did with us when we were coming up.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: I, mean, I, I do I, think, yeah, successful women entrepreneurs need to make themselves visible and available because role models are going to be critical for young women who are thinking about going into business.
0: I'm not sure they do, though. I mean, even, even in this town, I've had a really hard time you know, getting high-powered women in business to talk to me you know, even in in, in in an interview situation, and you know, they, they it's, a, it's a very insular world. Mm-hmm. I'm mean, talking about you know what's her name, Myra Witt's from a lot of lame names from TJX. I mean, she's, you know, these people are in another world, and yet it, I, I think her story would be really interesting, and you know, I think a lot of other women would be inspired by it. But you know, she doesn't want to. But, You know, Emily, when I did this guidebook, which
6: um, I fondly called The Power Chicks Guide to Boston, I interviewed 20 women. And I really did uh, get to talk to them about— Who'd you you get? You know, I had Gloria Larson. I had uh, Karen Kaplan, uh, Carol Fulp. Did you get Uh, Anne Finucane?
2: No, No, but (laughs) (laughs) I—
6: Did but, you try to get her? Uh, well, you know, I, I think that it was probably <laughs> in that circle of people that I reached out to a lot of yeah, women. Yeah. And those who responded, uh, sure. you know, just in terms of making the project easier, those who responded right. were the ones that, that I did. Because it wasn't my day job. It was my <laughs> avocation. So, But I was impressed by the fact that there are women in this town who think about it. Who There's the, the Massachusetts Women's Forum that is dedicated to cultivating younger women in the professions. But, you know, when it comes to really hard knocks of referring business to other women. It's different from the softer kinds of mentoring, and I don't know that there's that same sensibility about the business network as opposed to the um, uh, mentor-protege network.
0: Talking to Jerry Denterline, who owns a public relations firm, Denterline, and has written the book, The Power Chick's Guide to Boston, and Alicia Robb, senior fellow at the Coppin Foundation, specializing in women and minority entrepreneurs. Well, Alicia, did you find out any data show that there was a difference by region? You know, East Coast, West Coast, uh, middle of the country. Are, are there certain areas of the country that are have more growth with with women businesses, or as Jerry would say, more apt to even hire other women and promote women?
5: Yeah, we really haven't looked at that in um, in detail. I think certainly um, in the in the university areas where there's a lot of universities and highly educated women. I think there's, um, you know, slightly higher rates of of entrepreneurship and and business ownership by women. But I haven't looked at that um, specifically, no.
0: It it wouldn't surprise me, though, if there was kind of, uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast phenomenon, would it? You, Jerry?
6: Well, I think it's it might be to also by sector. I think in the tech area, it's more of a meritocracy where there are, are, are different kinds of networking um, in that. I think in some of the other service professions, it becomes a little more difficult. And I think women who own businesses have to work both the traditional network, meaning more of the, the male-dominated network, and the, the women's network, because you don't know where your next client is coming from.
0: What did you find out, Alicia, about um, minority... Uh, owners women in particular women minorities is 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 that a growth area as well
5: well certainly women um, minority women are entering into business ownership um, and as they become a larger se- uh, part of our population uh, they're going to be an increasing um, force uh, they they have um, a similar um, you know they are still lagging behind um, males as well we see that across um, the various racial, and ethnic groups. So we have a lot of, um, you know, untapped potential both um, with minority women and, and non-minority women.
0: So, Jerry, going back to what you said a second ago about when you do a presentation for a new client, you, you, you make sure you, have a, um, you mix up the genders. Do you think about that more? I mean, do you think about it in other areas, too? I mean, where, where a, uh, a business owned by a guy would never have to even imagine that or think about it too. Well, I think that where?
6: is changing. I think a lot of traditionally male-dominated firms are trying to mix it up with females because you look at the increasing number of females who are entering the workforce, the increasing number of consumers or financial decisions that are made by women, that I think there's there's actually a sensitivity going the other way as well.
0: Yeah. So-, so it, Knowing that you're going to go in to do a presentation for a client, there's going to be women in that room, too. That right, going to be- right.
6: So you have to be really sensitive to not look um, one, one way or the other, really. But you do have to mix it up, I think, and you have to show that you understand um, both sort of the sensibility that comes from having a, a, at least a, some gender diversity on your team.
0: What have you noticed in Boston? Have you, since you've been <laughs> 15 years? Did you say 12 years? That's a long and time. And I remember when you know, started. I've been that. around a long, yeah. lot longer than that. But um, have you noticed, you know, that difference in, you know, more women-owned businesses, more people that you're interacting with in power positions? I do. I see women uh, much more in those positions.
6: When I started my career, not necessarily my business, but my career, it really was uh, very much a man's world. In the world that I occupy, which is politics and government, and Business um, and the the media. I mean, you, Emily, were a trailblazer at Channel 5 Mm -hmm. and the executive side, people at my alma mater, Channel 4, like Sarah Ann Shaw and Shelby Scott. We always had these isolated women, but now I think you see in all of the professions
0: much more in terms of uh, women at the top. What what, uh, factor, Alicia, too, does, you know, just the whole family thing come into play here? You know, that women. Are still the primary caregivers for the children, so they can't be out, you know, drumming up business every second of the day and out, you know, making well, their, yeah, I think their business is bigger the, because they're they're juggling so many other things.
5: Part that's part of the the, the issue here. Um, even though women have made great progress in terms of labor force participation, um, they still are the primary caregivers, and that work-life balance has. Um, resulted in women starting more um, lifestyle, smaller, um, low growth or no growth businesses, just so they can maintain that balance. Yeah. So if we so are intentional, in, exactly, that's exactly the motivation is really that balance rather than high growth, high profit. So if we want um, to tap these women who have the capacity to build these high growth businesses, we have to. We're going to have to take that into account and figure out how we, as a society, can. Can better offer, um, you know, a balance that for for these types of uh, women.
0: Okay, Alicia Robb from the Kaufman Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. And Jerry Denderline, Thank you, from Thanks so much for Thank coming you. in. Join the conversation. Email us at emily at wgbh. org. Find us on Facebook or send us a tweet at Emily Rooney Show. We'd like to know what you think about women own businesses. Are you a woman? Are you do you own your own business? Give us a call. We'll. Uh, update you all tomorrow on our friday show up next martha stewart offering tips for how to stop a chicken's runny nose I can i wait to hear that one and celebrity chef mario batali batali decrying the sadistic state of reality food shows our resident foodie corby cummer joins us with some highlights from this year's atlantic food summit you're listening to the emily rooney show from 89.7 wgbh boston public radio
3: WGBH programs exist because of you. And Russell's, a family gardening tradition for over 135 years, with annuals, perennials, herbs and shrubs, bird baths, statuary, pots, plus jewelry, gifts, and toys. Russell's Garden Center, Route 20, Wayland. And InuWindow, presenting the Hunter Douglas Celebration of Light Window Fashions event, featuring Hunter Douglas Duet Architella energy-efficient shades, silhouette, and luminette shading systems. InuWindow.com And from members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be?
2: I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, Coriolanus and the Corner Office. This year, the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company is staging Shakespeare's political drama, Coriolanus. As a kind of preview, they produced a staged reading last week with a handful of Boston CEOs. We'll find out why Coriolanus is so timely and what lessons our CEOs can learn from this work. That's Today at One on WGBH Boston Public Radio. For 47 years now, the WGBH Spring Auction has been your chance to pick up some amazing deals.
4: Welcome, welcome at last, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Channel 2 Auction. This year, you can bid on a brand new Toyota Prius
2: donated by your New England Toyota dealers.
4: Bigger and better than ever.
2: Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television.
4: If you have stamina and strong eyesight, stay with us.
2: Bid high, bid often, but hurry. The Spring Auction ends May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org.
4: Join me, Brian O'Donovan, every Saturday at 3 for a session, well, just like that, on A Celtic Sojourn here on 89.7 WGBH. <laughs>
0: You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, Corby Comer is, of course, our resident foodie here on The Emily Rooney Show, but as senior editor at The Atlantic and the recipient of five James Beard Journalism Awards. He's a pretty darn big deal all over the food world. Exhibit number one, this year's Atlantic Food Summit, which took place a few days ago in Washington, D.C., where Corby scored one-on-one sit-downs with a few of the biggest names in food, including celebrity chef Mario Batali and and an icon Martha Stewart. And Corby Kummer is here. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but we're going to talk about some of the news of the day first. <laughs> I knew and you'd I, bring I this up. I can't wait to get your take on this. So Mayor Bloomberg in New York City is about to ban sugary drinks above 16 ounces. This means you can't go into a movie theater and buy a vat of, you know, I don't know, let's say Sprite or something like that. What do you think of that, banning sugary drinks over 16
4: ounces i think it's an end run around all the industry campaigns to ban soda taxes that's where everybody in the food world wants to go a penny an ounce we've tried it in massachusetts bloomberg tried it in new york it got killed in albany uh various places are trying across the country and the soda industry mounts multi multi-million dollar campaigns they've spent more on lobbying in the since Obama took office than they ever did before it's it's really startling. Uh, Reuters.com did this fantastic investigative report about exactly who they've paid and exactly how they stopped these tax initiatives in their tracks. So Bloomberg doesn't take no for an answer, right? You know, he's like the richest guy in New York. He's been incredibly activist. He set national standards, anti-smoking, trans fat bans. New York City set the way for all this. I see you rolling your eyes. Dr. (laughs) Killjoy.
0: It's like Mayor Bonino, killing, you know, banning fun.
4: Okay, trans fats are not joy. Yeah. So, a big vats of soda might be joy. Um, I think it's a good idea because I think people. I, I think you're trying to show people this is not going to be great for you if no, you eat lots and lots of it. But a way
0: to get? I don't believe in banning anything. You know me. It's just you just can't go around banning things. Yeah. You have to make it. I mean, movie theaters should take it upon themselves. To say you know what you don't need that <sighs> so big this is directing. how
4: powerful movie theaters yeah. <laughs> are calorie labeling got passed as a national rule in fact massachusetts had passed its own calorie labeling law which meant all bands oh sorry all bands god there i am all <laughs> restaurants over 15 chains uh 15 stores yep. in a chain had to label everything for calorie content So this was supposed to be enacted a long time ago because it was part of Obamacare and Affordable Care Act. But bars and movie theaters got themselves exempted because if you saw how much calories there are in a vat of popcorn. It's like 1,200, and most people are supposed to be having 2,500 calories a day. Somehow they succeeded in lobbying Mm -hmm. against this. So Bloomberg is not banning these. He's just saying he is so assiduous in what he said in today's Time story Mm -hmm. when he was at the press conference. He said, we're not banning it. Is it so hard to get two 16-ounce bottles of soda and bring them to your movie theater seat you can buy just as much as you want we're just not going to sell portions over 16 ounces
0: it seems to be penalizing the movie theaters when you can buy it other places i mean i don't
4: know he has an answer it's higher markup just charge more for that portion
0: Hmm. all right well we'll see how it works out for michael bloomberg and
4: then maybe uh,
0: tom and you know take it on whether he
4: gets it through you yeah. know, it's not through yet. Yeah. Generally, he gets what he wants, but we have to wait and see.
0: All right, let's talk about your big food summit in Washington, D.C. it was this year. They, they move that thing around, don't they?
4: Yes, yes.
0: So it was the Atlantic Food Summit, and you got a couple of one-on-one interviews. What was Martha Stewart like? Was she nice to you?
4: So Martha Stewart I've known since I took her to lunch at the Boston Ritz in 1982 when her first book came out. And she's somebody I admire enormously. You know, I watch her, I see her well, I see her fairly often. She's just ubiquitous. She's every place. And I think she's enormously admirable and enterprising.
0: I, I like her too. All right, here's a little bit of your interview with her. You were you were um, you were asking Martha Stewart about the glass ceiling and how to remedy other barriers for female entrepreneurs. Here's her answer.
2: Uh, we don't have enough women in,
0: um, who raise families in high positions in responsible companies. I think it would help a lot, especially in food production companies. I think they're a little bit more sensitive, maybe than the the male counterpart, to uh, the the health and well-being. That's interesting. You know, we were just talking in this previous yeah, That's just what I was thinking women. when I was listening. And and she's probably right. There probably aren't a lot of women in food production, I mean, it's a it's a big undertaking, it's, you know, but it's a lot of the reasons we were talking about, that women, you know, they don't have the time, they don't have, you know, they... they it's they, funny the you mention this.
4: The chairperson of, although I was very interested to note that the day before the summit, I read, the day of it, I read in the Times that at a board meeting, Martha had been named non-executive chairman, not chairperson, not chairwoman, of Martha Stewart Omnimedia, her company... Uh, But the chairperson of PepsiCo is a woman for the first time, Indian born, uh, extremely innovative in trying to move the company toward lower calorie snack food. So she's been very enterprising. She's Encountered huge headwinds from her stockholders, who don't think that she should be veering away from promoting the core brands, which are the high-sugared sodas. However, she's not raising her children there. In fact, she's famous for getting no more than four to six hours of night of sleep a night,
0: just like Martha Stewart. Wow, that's that's is, is that all Martha Stewart sleeps too? Four oh yeah, to six hours right.
4: She's she's famous for that. Really? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What else did you talk about with her?
4: Oh, gosh. We talked a lot about uh, – first of all, she's always been an advocate for sustainability. Um, one of the things I think about Martha is everybody thinks she's so meticulous and so she's so ridiculous, like putting a mosaic floor on the bottom of her pool in that American Express ad where she was really making fun of herself. She makes yeah, fun yeah. of herself. It's about making money and being independent. And being a businesswoman, that's always what, been what she's about. She shows you how to do things for yourself, so it's how to raise your own food. And I asked her about gardening and sustainability because she started a magazine. It's its in fact the old Body and Soul magazine, which used to be right down the street from the WGBH office. It's now called Whole Living. And it's all about sustainability, uh, hmm. taking a sustainable approach to your life. It's you know aimed at women, but it's got really good advice in it and very smart articles. But this has been something she's been doing from the beginning. Um, and I asked about how she learned gardening. Her father in Nutley, New Jersey, which she's always proud of having come from, uh, grew everything from seeds, not seedlings. There was one table in their house that had a picture window and they could start seeds in the winter and grow their own seedlings. They had a victory garden in a backyard, shared gardening space, which, of course, now is enormously in fashion. But that was a holdover from the war in the late 50s when she was growing up. And they would grow tons of their own vegetables. So this is something she grew up with and Hmm. she knew. So when she started her estate in Westport that she used on her TV show or now her huge farm in Bedford, New York, which is always on her TV show and in her magazines, everything there was organic and sustainable. And, you know, the whole chicken fetish that she's (laughs) begun, you know, that's part of raising your own eggs and raising your own food. She was there way before it became a trend.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask you if there's anything kind of new on herbs, and that that is one of the things—the chickens and the eggs—is—is is, is there anything in particular that that she talked about that's seasonal, or some, I mean, if some food comes in all these waves and things change. Is there anything sort of on the? horizon that she talked about, like, food-wise?
4: Well, what she's trying to do is defend the idea of going to your farmer's market and growing your own food and growing it in the winter. So that's some place where people haven't caught up with her, which is trying to grow food year-round, which you can do in hmm. New England with, like, essentially plastic tunnels over your garden bed.
0: Oh, I was going to say, it was be tough in a condo, though.
4: Uh, yeah, I guess it's <laughs> tough in a condo. But we'll think about plastic tunnels over your window yeah, boxes you on your patio. All
0: right. All right, so you also got to talk to celebrity chef um, Mario Batali, and you were asking him about, um, about these reality TV food cho- – I, I, I have to say I, I don't know what you're talking about, but you'll explain it. Here's a little of what he said uh, you were asking him about that you Iron can chef. That you
4: can put on the air?
0: We're going to put a little bit on the okay. air. Okay. I know.
4: I loved Iron Chef. I had a blast. We worked really hard. I worked with the same people all the time. That doesn't happen in all of those shows. And and, and the competition doesn't always work when you win or when you lose. It's more about, are you having a good time with it? And when they had judges like you and Jeff Steingart and people whose opinion I felt merited the ability to criticize my food, Uh that's one thing. But when all of a sudden you get these skinny little actresses from a show called The O.C. and they're saying they don't like raw fish, I'm like, you, why are you talking about my food? (laughs)
0: I guess he was a little profane when it came to that. Well so he's talking about shows that rank that rate his food his?
4: Sure. he's in competitions. So it used to be that judges were you know food critics who did this for a living. sometimes they still are like on um, Top Chef mm. Top Chef masters. Uh, there are people who criticize food or make food professionally okay. for a living. So it's kind of like a peer group. There are different teams who are given just an hour to produce a dish. People love these shows. The question is, who's going to judge and evaluate one dish over another? He went on to say in completely un language. Yeah, we can to cut that. <laughs> um, so... An actress is saying, I wouldn't make it that way. Well, of course you wouldn't make it that way. You're not a cook. You don't know anything about food. So who's interested in the way you would make it or not? So he became very disenchanted when he just felt that the standards, the the, the goalposts were being moved.
0: Huh. And, and so he, he doesn't participate in these things anymore. Like
4: Much less. He's on a show called The Chew, which is a talk show about food. I, I think very few people talk as well or, or articulately as he. I urge you to go on TheAtlantic.com because there's a clip of his whole interview. And what he said about training chefs and about bringing them up and the idea that chefs graduate from culinary school with very big heads. And I specifically got him on this tack because the question is, does TV make people want to cook does it actually teach them anything about going to the kitchen and does it help chefs careers he was of the opinion that when chefs are caught making out with girls who aren't their girlfriend and that becomes you know fodder for uh gossip columns and when they go back after losing competitions as some of our best-known chefs in boston have done he said they don't go back to full restaurants i kind of disagree I think that TV exposure is always good for chefs, uh, that it helps their career. Look, we've got Tiffany Faison, who has opened Sweet Cheeks. The thing is, you don't get any money.
0: Well, Todd English is kind of an example of somebody who went the other way.
4: Well, what uh, way? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, he was he was very successful on TV, and then his businesses have been less so.
4: What I, Where I was going with Tiffany is... Once you get back, you're not making money from the actual TV appearance. You have to raise money and produce good food or people aren't going to come back a second time. You have to keep producing good food or there you will be losing all the capital and the publicity.
0: Well, was Mario referring to himself? I mean, does he, does he feel like – what restaurant was his,
4: but is his? Oh, he's, he's got a whole empire. That starts with Babo in New York. Uh, the fanciest restaurant in Italian food that's almost ever been opened in America is called Del Posto. That's also in New York. Um, he's got uh, Pizzeria Mazza in Los Angeles, which is a fantastically successful restaurant with Nancy Silverton as the chef. So he's got a bunch of very successful restaurants.
0: So is he talking about himself when he says once you do TV, you never go back?
4: No. He's not because he, you know, he's always been disciplined. But what he is saying is you can't expect you're going to get an executive chef job because you're young and attractive, maybe have a lot of tattoos and a profane <laughs> mouth and get on – you catch the eye of a talent producer and you get on a TV show. you got to go back and produce quality yeah. and churn out quality. And I think that most chefs who've been on TV would – argue that is the lesson you have to take back, but they'll do anything they can to get and to stay on TV.
0: It is an amazing phenomenon, really born in the last, I guess, 20 years or so, this whole notion of celebrity chefs. And, of course, TV was the catalyst for that. And Now, think about how many well-known chefs there are. In, in this country alone. It's, it's phenomenal.
4: Well, the whole idea that it's a respected profession, it never was. It was something your parents said, I didn't send you to college to be a chef. The way now people who were influenced by Martha Stewart will go into farming and their parents say, farm? Farm? What are you doing? Uh, and in fact, for many people, farming is a profitable business, especially if they're doing it on a large scale. It's gotten much more respect from investors than it ever had. Uh, but the idea of being an executive chef, it's in the mainstream of United States celebrity. And, and who would have thought it? But as Mario pointed out, these shows, he said, I think of them as gladiator shows. You come out, you gladiate, and you go back, and you're completely adversarial, and you beat up on each other during the show, and then you're friends afterward. I
0: think that's... Do you me.
4: watch them? No.
0: Me either. Never. <laughs> I, I mean, I just I don't. But, but I, I mean, I really don't watch any reality. But let me say I, that some, American some
4: of my best friends do. River
0: Monsters. Yeah, that's my one. That's my <laughs> one weakness. River Monsters. I love that show.
4: <laughs> and they're completely addicted to Top Chef. That seemed Top Chef and Top Chef Masters. And then there's the Iron Chef contingent, which just has this macho strain to it. People love them. And if it makes them think more about food and take it more seriously, I think it's great.
0: We haven't even talked about food. Well, I'm going to have to have you back because it's, <laughs> we, you know, it's summer. It's, this is our favorite season, isn't it? It's so everything our is, favorite season. Oh, my gosh. And everything. local
4: asparagus at City uh, Feed.
0: Lo- lo- local asparagus is fa- fabulous. I've been eating a lot of that recently. And what else is good right now? Uh,
4: uh, strawberries.
0: Strawberries. Yeah, real strawberries. Not as my aunt used to say, California acid balls. Right. There are real strawberries out there now. So go out and, and buy raspberries. some. And raspberries. Raspberries have gotten good all year round, though. Driscoll's. That's true. That's true. I've, I've
4: been to the Driscoll farm. Uh, have you really? They do an amazing job. I,
0: I bring them to, into the office and eat them like candy.
4: They took me too. They, except they're expensive. They took me into the you field know, and I picked much. them. And let me tell you, it's a <laughs> really? lot harder than it Driscoll's? looks in a Driscoll field. It's near Monterey, California. Oh, I can so get Salinas, out there myself. It's and, and Salinas. Beautiful. That's the great um, fruit basket.
0: All right, Corby Comer, as always, pleasure to have you here, our resident foodie. That's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. Elizabeth Warren finally speaks out on the subject of her um, Native American heritage. The Celtics dig themselves a hole. It's our spin on the week that was. Stay with us now for the Callie Crossley show coming up next. If Hamlet were pulling his power play shenanigans today, would he face criminal charges? Hmm. That's tonight, and tonight on my uh, that's coming up next, and tonight on my radio show, I'm on my TV show. David Axelrod is in town. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.